The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Hello there, and welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, bringing neuroscience to schools, what educators need to know about addiction and the brain, presented by Lee Dalfonts. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. Welcome everyone and thank you for attending the ninth offering in our fall webinar series, Bringing Neuroscience to Schools, What Educators Need to Know About Addiction and the Teen Brain with Lee Delfons. I'm Katie Hamill, a Rhode Island Student Assistance Services Student Assistance Counselor and Project Manager for this webinar series. This series is brought to you by RISAS with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health and focuses on youth mental health, trauma, and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. Please sign in in the chat box with your name, your affiliation, and role. If you are watching this recorded version, below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page. We will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, don't forget to complete the post survey. By completing the survey, you will have the ability to receive a certificate of completion, CEUs, and be entered into a drawing to win a $100 gift card. Before introducing our presenter, I want to tell you about our next webinar scheduled for November 9th at 6.30 on the topic of social media, everything parents need to know with Jennifer Garveria. This webinar will be in Spanish. To register for these and our other webinars, please go to our website at www.risas.org. We are extremely fortunate to bring you Lee Delfons. Lee Delfons is an educator, organizational consultant, and psychotherapist with 30 plus years of experience planning, implementing, and evaluating a number of innovative outpatient, residential, home, and hospital-based programs and services for individuals co-occurring psychiatric and substance use disorders. Lee has provided training and consultation for a variety of audiences and for a number of health, human service, and governmental organizations throughout the United States and Canada. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Lee. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us tonight. One of the first things I just want to talk about a little bit is sort of think about sort of over time how the general public has thought about the concept of addiction and how they defined it and what they thought it represented. If you go back in time to uh, as early as 2001, Alcoholics Anonymous was, uh, was describing addiction as an allergy. You know, and it was an, in, in the big book, they talk about an allergy that results in uncontrollable cravings that can only be managed by total lifelong abstinence. And for a lot of people uh, that didn't go into treatment, self-help, things like Alcoholics Anonymous were the first people to, the first place that people got services or got any kind of uh, recovery. And again, it was an abstinence-only approach based on the idea that this person has an allergic response to alcohol, therefore it's never safe to drink again. Prior to that, most conceptualizations of addiction really were just clearly behavioral. The idea that it was a conscious choice that people were making, or sometimes it was couched in terms of morality, which is certainly during prohibition, that's how alcohol was considered. Jelinek was the first the medical researcher that started to really take in a sense, took a little bit of the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous allergy and talked about a disease. Now, according to Jelinek, there were two types of disease manifestations that, that he considered to be, quote unquote, an alcoholic or somebody with an alcohol disease. Both of them were marked by uh, physiological and biological changes within the body that occurred as a result of alcohol use. One was tissue cell adaptation, which is really the idea of the the, the tissues and the cells became physically reliant on the regular presence of alcohol. When alcohol wasn't present, then there was withdrawal symptoms. And then the second one was, you know, the person that, you know, maybe could go extended periods of alcohol, but once they would start drinking, they would drink to excess and have problems. So that became kind of the, in the general public lexicon, 
known as the loss of control or the inability to abstain. Again, the loss of control is what you might think of as the binge drinker. The inability to abstain is the person, you know, that every day they have their alcohol, otherwise they have withdrawal symptoms. That idea of, you know, that there's more than one type of manifestation of how alcohol dependence may show up for somebody is also uh, coined in later research by Neil Cloninger and his colleagues. And he called it what he called type one and type two. What was really kind of interesting about them was that that they were very different personality types. What he called type one was the individual who, you know, really in a sense saw alcohol as a rewarding substance. They would, you know, be much more social, much more active, energetic, maybe seek out excitement, maybe get into fights and arguments, but people that would sort of chase risk in a sense. But interesting enough, there was also a group of people using alcohol, according to these researchers, that were just the opposite. They were more shy, timid, nervous, avoidant, and, you know, a lot of times had social phobias. For this group, alcohol served a totally different purpose. It helped them to feel a little less anxious, a little less nervous, maybe more social and social events and stuff. Um, that becomes, you'll see later, how, whether it's a rewarding substance or, or helps you to avoid uncomfortable feelings, you know, it becomes very important later when we go through the cycle of addiction. No, so, so again, so going back as early as, you know, 1960s, the medical community was starting to weigh in. Into the 1990s, we're still getting quite a bit of research uh, on, you know, the idea that there's a, some kind of a medical component to addiction. But that sort of science development was sort of running parallel to the so-called war on drugs, right? And if you think about the war on drugs and we think about addiction as being more than just about alcohol, then, then what you really see is, sort of the, the policy and the public language becomes very important in terms of the belief system that people hold about addiction. For example, you know, the difference between say, a lot of people say alcohol and drugs. That simple term, alcohol and drugs, implies that alcohol is not a drug. But what do we know about statistics? What we know about statistics is that more people die every year from alcohol-related illnesses than from every other illegal drug combined. And more people die from nicotine every year than from alcohol and every illegal drug combined. So, Because the reality is that nicotine's a drug, alcohol's a drug, and things that may be illegal are drugs. And medications are drugs that can be abused as well. Um, and, and I point that out just in terms of sort of the, the, the stigma language. So you'll see people be much more careful, especially people in the field. Well, instead of saying alcohol and drugs, they'd say alcohol and other drugs. It's important we make that distinction to always reinforce that alcohol is a drug. To bring the science up to, to more modern day, there's, there's a whole field of science now called neurobiology. Neurobiology is really kind of sort of like the name implies. It's looking at the biological functions and structures of the brain. That's what they mean by neuro and the nervous system, right? So the central nervous system, the brain, and the structures and functions of the nervous system the brain is what neurobiology is about. When you apply neurobiology to addiction, then you're looking at what goes on in the brain and in the central nervous system of somebody who uses substances, you know, to excess. And what the research is showing pretty clearly is that once introduced to substances, the brain very quickly adapts to the presence of that substance. And if somebody uses high doses of any substance, whether it's alcohol or some kind of illegal drug or even a medication that's prescribed that maybe not taken as prescribed and taken more for recreational purposes, then the brain starts to change. Um, and and, and the, the, what the brain changes occur really perpetuate the disease process of addiction. You'll see later. I'm going to show you some slides to help you sort of see what happens in what they call the, the cycle of addiction. But for now, for purposes of this particular slide, just important to know that the changes that get made actually uh, remain in the brain sometimes, you know, for years after the person stops using, which is one of the reasons that relapse happens because you know, there's been functional and structural changes in the brain. So the brain is still craving potentially the presence of that substance when they don't have it. What we're also finding is that depending on somebody's childhood ex experiences, you know, there's a lot of studies called the, the ACE studies, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And, and the, what we found is that when young children are exposed to different kinds of uh, traumas, whether, you know, uh, unstable uh, relationships with family members or 
you know, risk of mental illness or violence or addiction in the home or absent parents, abusive, exploitive, or um, neglectful parents or caregivers living with any of those kinds of conditions that they call adverse childhood exposures. If they happen early and they're persistent, then it actually creates changes in the brain that become structural changes in how the brain functions. And those functional changes that occur in childhood persist into adulthood and they're proven to be very high risk potential for addiction later on in life, even if there's no use prior to the changes in the brain. What we're also finding is what's called epigenetic changes. What that means is that the exposure to adverse childhood experiences and trauma early on can change the gene structure, can activate genes that wouldn't have been activated otherwise, and it could deactivate genes that were activated prior to exposure to the trauma. What's interesting about that is once those genes are changed, that means that becomes something the person can pass on if they have children later as adults. So what we're seeing is, again, very early connection. Some of the changes that occur as a result of exposure to adverse childhood experiences very much parallel the changes when an adult or an adolescent is exposed to, you know, uh, repeated use of any kind of substance. You see a lot of the exact same kind of structural and epigenetic changes. What the research is also starting to show is this concept of neuroplasticity, which some of you may have heard of. And neuroplasticity really is the brain's ability to learn new behaviors, new skills, right? When somebody's first born, there's great potential for people to learn just about anything. You know, a young child is able to learn any language, right? Because it's because of the neuroplasticity of the brain. And, and when they talk about neuroplasticity, what they're really talking about is how the different neurons in the brain connect to each other, right? How much left-right brain connectivity there is. But there's a thing called pruning that occurs naturally relative to the brain structures and the connections between the different parts of the brain and the different neurons. If we don't use things for a while, after a while, through the pruning process, those connections get lost. That's why as an adult, it's much harder to learn a foreign language than it is as a kid because of the neuroplastic process where you know the brain says, okay, I'm only gonna keep those connections that are necessary, right? Because it takes a lot of energy from the body to maintain all those connections. And that's also part of what happens in the addiction process too, that, that in a sense, what they're saying is the addiction becomes sort of a learned process that, 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 that solidifies structural changes in the brain that connects uh, the certain neurons. So as a result of that, the behavioral responses that people have available to them become diminished over time, right? And same thing, we think like people with anxiety, they sort of get fixated on something. It's hard to get off that topic because the brain just sort of running this endless loop. That's because of structural changes in the brain and, and neuroplasticity that sort of hardwires a certain pathway of response. What, what it's also we know, know is that neuroplasticity is bidirectional. That means we can unlearn these unhealthy patterns too through a repetitious practice of alternatives, right? So that's how cognitive behavioral therapy really works. If you think about it. With cognitive behavioral therapy, we teach people to reframe their experiences, reframe how they think about things. And, and what we're really doing then is trying to use the neuroplasticity of the brain to reverse the process. So let's look at what, I know I'm giving you sort of a crash course in neuroplasticity and brain stuff because it will help you as we get into the addiction cycle and we look at the actual brain stuff that's going on here. So according to research is right, there's very good scientific evidence to suggest that there's a very predictable path of addiction that when somebody's using a certain substance for an extended period of time or using in very high doses with, a, with some degree of consistency, then there's a much more of a likelihood that the person can become both physically and psychologically dependent on that drug of choice, right? And according to researchers, there's, there's really three distinct uh, phases that occur in the cycle of addiction. You can see them on the slide. It's the binge intoxication stage. Scientists call that incentive salience. There's the withdrawal and negative affect stage, which is also known as reward deficit and stress surfia. And I'll go through these in more detail. And then there's a preoccupation or anticipation stage craving, right? Now, 
Uh, as you can see in this slide, the different parts of the brain are different colors because uh, what, what that means is in the preoccupation and uh, anticipation stage, the craving stage, you'll see it's the you'll see it's colored in green on your slide. That's the prefrontal cortex for the most part, right? That's where all the executive function lies. That's where we uh, do decision-making and planning and logic and, and, and learn habits, right? So that's the stage of the, that's the part of the brain that's very active during the, the phase of the, the addiction cycle known as craving. Um, if you see in blue is the binge intoxication stage incentive salient stage, right? That's the parts of the brain that are involved when we're talking about somebody's actively using, right? What's interesting is basal ganglia and uh, uh, that parts of the brain are really uh, where we learn habits, we practice them, and it's where we have seek pleasure or avoid pain is really in that part of the brain where a lot of the, what we call emotions or feelings are also housed, right? And then the withdrawal uh, negative affect stage, you can see it's a different part of the brain. And it's much more of the, the, the parts of the brain that are connected to uh, the stress response systems in the body, the fight or flight, the freeze uh, reactions. Um, that's when somebody gets you know, in an agitated state. That's when this sort of the survival part of the brain takes over and takes the prefrontal cortex offline. And you'll see the implications of that in the latest slides. So that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's sort of what we mean by the addiction cycle. It's these three phrases. From the time somebody starts using to the point that you would say that in, in an addiction cycle, it's different for different people, right? How quickly that happens for somebody depends on a, a bunch of factors. Depends on, you know, uh, the severity and duration of your each episode of use, right? You know, um, and what's the strength of the drug that you're using? How much do you use? What's your method of ingestion, right? That something that's injected intravenously versus intramuscularly versus you swallow it or smoke it or snort it, each makes a difference in how the body processes it, how quickly it gets into the bloodstream and gets activated, right? And also whether somebody also has co-occurring psychiatric or medical conditions also increases, you know, or decreases how fast somebody may go from using to becoming a problem. You know, and that's part of one of the reasons it's so hard for some people to sort of recognize that they have a substance-related problem because it's sort of insidious. It's not like one day you wake up and you realize it. Instead, it's sort of, you know, it may seem like you have control of it and you really don't at one point, don't realize it. So let's sort of go through those stages now um, a little more detail here. Um, so in the binge or intoxication stage, and sometimes they call it the incentive salience, you know, that's the parts of the brain, basal ganglia, uh, nucleus accumbens, and dorsal stradium, right? Again, if you're not a neuroscientist, you're probably not gonna remember most of this stuff, but, but that's why I gave you the slide so that you can sort of refer to this back. But, but I think what's more important than what we call that part of the brain is to understand what goes on in that parts of the brain and why it's relevant to addiction, right? N nucleus accumbens is really what the part of the brain that's associated with motivation and experience and reward, right? So, you know, it's, it, it, it's the part that keeps us wanting to do more of something, right? You know, so if, if I use a substance and I have a very pleasurable experience, I may want to do that again, right? Just like anytime we do something that we enjoy, right? And it's that part of the brain that allows us to, to, to get the euphoric effect from the substance. Um, interesting enough, I keep talking about substances, but what research has shown very clearly when they look at the neuroimaging studies, they look at the brains of people that have what we call process addictions, they see the exact same parts of the brain are activated in the same way. A process addiction is something that doesn't involve a substance, but somebody becomes habituated to continue to do it. Um, and, and, and they have the same kind of uncomfortable process when they can't have access to it. You know, process addiction, you know, is things like gambling or shopping addiction or uh, um, uh, a sex addiction. Any, again, it's, it doesn't involve a substance. But what's interesting is that process of process addiction produces the exact same changes within the brain that I'm describing here when I talk about substances. And, and it has to do with the reward that the person gets from it initially, right? 
you know, so I, I, from gambling and I win a bunch of money, well, it's going to make me want to do that again, potentially, right? The, the other part of the, the, the nucleus acumen also is involved with taking information that comes in from the limbic structures, which is where we have our emotions, right? In the cortical structure where we do our thinking, right? And it puts the two together and sort of gets us emotionally motivated to go towards a certain goal, right? Except in the case of addiction, the goal becomes getting more of the substance or getting more of whatever it is I'm addicted to, more gambling, uh, more shopping, more internet, more uh, whatever it is that I'm addicted to. It could be a substance or not. But again, the reason that uh, initially for most people that they get a pleasant experience from it, the brain remembers it very strongly. And then, you know, through the, the process of remembering it, wants more of it. The dorsal stradium is also the part of the brain where we form habits, right? The addiction a lot of times is really a pattern of behavior, right? It's repeatedly doing the same thing over and over, right? Because the brain expects a certain result. But what the, the, the result that the brain expects changes over time as the process of addiction continues, which you'll see in the next couple of slides. So again, for most people, the binge of intoxication stage is when they're actively using, and for the most part, initially, it's a positive experience that changes later. It's positive reinforcement is a term we use as educators. I'm sure you all know the concept of positive reinforcement, right? You get a reward and you want that reward again, so you do more of the desired behavior. Well, in the case of addiction, positive reinforcement takes the form of seeking out re-exposure to the substance, or in the case of process addiction, re-exposure to the process, like gambling. Um, the problem is, over time, though, that, that you start to build up tolerance, right? So that, what's that mean? Tolerance means that in order to get that same positive reinforcement effect that I used to get, I have to take more, more of the substance. Or, you know, if it's pornography addiction, you see people progress in the type of pornography that they're, that they're attracted to or gambling, you know, will take higher and higher risk with gambling. Again, it's because it, in a sense, it's trying to recreate that initial positive reinforcing effect that they got. And sometimes the way that people deal with tolerance is to increase the frequency they use, the amount they use, or how they ingest it. Like you'll see people with heroin, for example, and other opioids will, maybe they'll start taking in an oral format, and then maybe they smoke it, then they snort it, and at some point they start injecting it. What usually that progression is a result of tolerance. So the person is getting more and more to tolerant to the effects. What that also means, if you think of it in terms of brain chemistry and brain structure, that means that when somebody has tolerance, it means the brain's getting used to having that. And so the normal state is the presence of the substance. The abnormal state for the brain is not having, which is you'll see when we get into withdrawal. What happens later in addiction for, 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 for people, again, remember when we talked about type 1 and type 2 to alcoholics, we said that there was a group of people that, you know, that was very much from day one, a positively reinforcing effect, you know, but the type two is the person that's anxious, nervous, risk avoidant, right? And so maybe things like alcohol might give them, you know, liquid courage to be more social in, in, in public situations, right? Um, so that's negative reinforcement. Again, negative reinforcement is you get reinforced by removing the aversive, right? And since a lot of you may work with kids, you, you probably know this already, right? The kid negatively reinforces us you know, at the toy store and they're, they're causing a big scene because they want a toy and you start crying and crying and you want the crying to stop because you're embarrassed in the public so you buy them a toy. Well, then the kid learned that, oh, crying gets me a toy, right? The negative reinforcement for the parent in that example is the, the baby stops crying or the young child stops crying, right? Because now I don't have that aversive that's upsetting me. In, in forms of addiction, that concept of negative reinforcement, a lot of times the aversive that people experience, especially like the people with, with you know, predispositions towards anxiety, things like that is, or depression is that maybe I feel, you know, I have all these like, obsessive, raising, you know, anxious thoughts running through my head and when I drink, those thoughts quiet down. I'm not quite so anxious, right? Or maybe I've got, you know, some, you know, painful memory from the past that, it, it, it's keeping me depressed and I, uh, you know, but when I drink, it dulls that and they sort of forget that temporarily. 
Um, or I'm just having a bunch of uncomfortable emotions and, and I sort of numbs me when I use the substance. Any of those things. So in those cases, the substance or the, the process addiction is acting as a negative reinforcer. So that's important to know because, you know, at a certain point, even the people that started out with the, the, the addiction being a positive reinforcing event, over time, it, it, it becomes a negative reinforcing. They're not really getting much of the euphoria anymore after a while because of tolerance. Instead, what they get is withdrawal symptoms. You know, I, I get physical and psychological withdrawal symptoms where I feel miserable if I don't have the substance, right? And, and when I take the substance, whatever it is that I may be addicted to, then, then those withdrawal symptoms subside, they, they, they get better. So again, that's a negative reinforcing event. If you were to graph it out, what you'd see is that in the beginning, for most people, the use of a substance or a process addiction is, is maintained through positive reinforcement. But at some point, as people get more into the throes of addiction, it, it's capitalized solely by negative reinforcement. There's no longer positive reinforcement. Again, so in a sense, the person feels miserable when they don't have the substance. They feel better when they have it. Um, and so you can see why people will keep using it if that's the case, right? So if you put these two together, right? And then, uh, um, it, and you think of the brain chemistry, what also happens is that somebody becomes more tolerant to a substance. That means the brain and the body can absorb more without, you know, so the person may drink quite a bit, but they'll so almost walk around like they're not under the influence. You wouldn't necessarily know it, right? At the same time, they're not really getting any positive effects from it. They're just avoiding negative effects, right? That's what when, that's what they mean when they say reward deficit, right? I'm not getting the same reward. Now keep in mind, if you remember when we talked about the adverse childhood experiences and some of the structural brain changes that can happen in young children exposed to adverse childhood experiences is the same thing. There can be some functional and structural changes that happen as a result of neglect and trauma and, and um, you know, disturbed parent-child relationships. Um, and those changes in, in the brain for young children can create the same kind of reward deficit where they don't, you know, it's sort of like they don't get much joy out of life. It's sort of, you know, they only just try to avoid a pain, but they don't get much joy. So if somebody already has that predisposition and they start using substances, then, then you know, they already have, they're already, in a sense, hardwired to quickly develop a substance-related problem because the brain's already trying for that. And again, we already talked about that if you, with tolerance, you know, you've got to, if you want to get any positive effect, you can only do that once you get tolerant by doing one of the things here. You increase use, the frequency, or the method, the metabolism. Now, stress surfia is one of the terms you'll see on the slides of psychoaddiction. Is what that really means is the person's ability to tolerate the stress becomes increasingly compromised. And again, that has a direct connection to the adverse childhood experiences studies. One of the structural and functional changes that seems to occur in the prefrontal cortex and the uh, cerebral cortex regions of the brain when children are exposed to adverse childhood experiences is that they really get easily overly stimulated and have less and less ability to tolerate. And maybe those are the people that potentially that, that, that Neil Collinger was talking about the type two alcoholic person sort of kind of nervous all the time and hypervigilant and you know, really try very hard to avoid any conflict or stress um, because they don't, they either don't believe they can handle it or they really can't handle it without even greater psychological distress and response. So withdrawal, again, puts those, when, when people go through what we call withdrawal, right? And we talk about being both a physical and a psychological dependence. That's what we're really talking about is that in the withdrawal, what's sometimes called the negative affect stage, right? both the reward deficit concept and the stress surfeit concept are occurring simultaneously, right? And again, if you look at the parts of the brain that are involved, it's the extended amygdala, right? Which is, you know, you can see listed there the different parts of that, right? Those parts of the brain is really how sort of our emotion and they're directly connected to, you know, the, the activation of the stress response system in the body and the brain. Right, is that that put somebody in sort of a hypervigilant state, right? So, so when somebody's in withdrawal, whether it's physical, psychological, or both, 
what that means is that they're not comfortable in their own skin, you know, and they just feel awful and they feel like they can't get through the day without some solution, right? And for some people, the solution is, you know, a substance or a process addiction. Again, if you were to study somebody that was having craving to gamble again or craving for cocaine or craving for alcohol, you would look at the 3D uh, functional MRIs where you can actually see the neurochemicals flowing through the different parts of the brain, you'll see the exact same sort of profile of all the activation really occurring in the extended amygdala. As you can see, the extended amygdala is right near the brainstem, again, which means it's going to activate the potential fight, flight, or freeze stress response, right? Again, it overlaps with people that have PTSD. Right? And when someone with PTSD gets activated or gets triggered by some past trauma, then that's the same parts of the brain that get activated, right? Um, which sort of makes sense, right? Because PTSD is really, in a sense, a term we use to talk about a single trauma. But if a child or an adolescent is exposed to chronic trauma, then, you know, sometimes in the literature they refer to that as neurodevelopmental trauma. Or, uh, or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's the same processes, right? That's one of the reasons you're gonna frequently see people that maybe have a substance use disorder will also have depression or anxiety or PTSD or any combination thereof, a variety of mental health, uh, other conditions. It's because it's really having dramatic effects on those parts of the brain and impacting people in pretty profound ways. So we talked about the stress response system, right? If you think about what happens, one of the things that happens when the stress response gets activated for anybody is that the body and the brain naturally redirect energy throughout the body. When you're not in a state of stress, you know, there's by some estimates, upwards of 24% of all the energy within the body is used to, to operate the cerebral cortex and the prefrontal cortex, you know, where we do our thinking and logic and reasoning, executive functioning. 24% of all the energy that exists goes to that one part, even though that part of the brain maybe accounts for less than 2% of the person's body weight or body mass. It's literally taking up close to 25% or a quarter of all the energy that exists in the body. But when the stress response system gets activated, it tries to conserve energy and redirect energy for the fight, flight, or freeze response, right? So if, you know, if the brain senses danger, like if you're a gazelle and, you know, you suddenly see a lion next to you, well, you want to be able to run as fast as you can, you know? Well, in people, that means, again, you want to be able to run, fight, whatever, hide, whatever you need to do. But so you're not going to need abstract reasoning skills and the ability to do logic and analytical reasoning. And so all those executive functions go offline. That's important to know because that's one of the reasons people that have substance and other kinds of addiction seem to make really questionable and poor decisions, right? Where they, they when they're not, when they're, they're doing better and then, you know, they're not under the influence and maybe when they're in recovery, they can think back on decisions and say, I can't believe I used to do that or that I'd make those decisions. But if you think of it in terms of the stress response being activated, the executive function is going offline so the energy can be redirected. Um, now, when I talk about energy, it takes different forms, right? Because it takes neuronal, hormonal, and through glucose, basically, right, is the way that the energy gets redirected. Uh, the neuronal is really comes from the brain, right? And that means that certain parts of the brain get very active and other parts get very inactive when there's a neuronal response to stress. The hormonal response to stress is what most people are aware of, you know, that's when you get, the, you know, adrenaline going through your body and the cortisol levels are very high. Um, that means that sort of, you know, kind of agitated state. Now, somebody that already has a history of trauma, because it may be PTSD, single, PTSD from a single trauma or, or developmental uh, trauma dating back to childhood, um, that person's already at high risk of being easily triggered into a hypervigilant, um, hyper-aroused state uh, where the stress response system gets activated. If you add substances to it, again, it's, it, it has what they call a synergistic effect. And synergistic means basically one plus one equals three potentially, or one plus one equals five, right? So it, it, it makes it much worse. 
And it also means that, you know, the person's much more apt to become, you know, what we would call addicted. So they're in that cycle of addiction and much more apt to get into that much faster as a result of that. So we talk about executive function and prefrontal cortex. This is what we're really talking about. So think about all these different skills. These are, you know, and if you're educators in the audience, I'm sure you see this every day with your kids, right? Think of kids with ADHD. These are the same kinds of uh, parts of the uh, person's intellectual functioning that get compromised, you know, with untreated ADHD as well, right? Again, organization, prioritization, task initiation, focus, effort, emotions, memory, right? All of this again, goes offline. When I say it goes offline, when, when the energy is getting redirected about that. It means you can't really think clearly, right? So, you know, that, and that's why it's much more easy. If, again, she talked also about, you know, that the brain remembers the, uh, the rewards, whether it's a positive or negative reinforcement, the brain is imprinted after somebody's been exposed to a substance or a process addiction for enough use, right? That, that the brain gets into that sort of state where it's not really thinking clearly. And the only thing you can really think about is how can I relieve, how can I either get that pleasure again, or how can I relieve all this distress that I'm experiencing that I don't, that I don't believe I can handle. And one of the reasons they have trouble sort of making good decisions, again, you can see all the different parts of the brain where it's not getting the energy and, and there's not much activity. So with that, what that means, again, when somebody's in withdrawal phase of of the addiction cycle, if you looked at their brain on functional brain imaging, you'd see virtually no activity whatsoever for the most part in the prefrontal cortex. Again, so craving is, again, craving is when the person's thinking about whatever th their addiction is. You know, you can't stop thinking about going back to the casino or, uh, um, or I can't stop thinking about alcohol. What's really interesting is that research shows that the substance itself is less involved with creating the reward than the expectation itself, right? I'll give you an example. It's sort of an interesting one. If you talk to anybody that, you know, has an alcohol problem, they can relate to this example, right? So person, like, you know, really preoccupied with trying to get alcohol and they're watching the clock and they're trying to get out of working time. and They're aware of the fact that the liquor store closes at 10 PM. And if they can't get to the liquor store in time, they won't have liquor for the night. And they get, they rush to the store and they get there, they literally get there one minute at 10. And just as they get in the, the door, you know, they make it into the liquor store, the person locks the door behind them. They'll get a rush. A lot of people get a rush of euphoria at that point. And what's interesting is that rush of euphoria they get will exceed any positive effect they actually get when they use the substance, right? Which goes to show that, that, you know, sort of how complicated the process of addiction is, right? So the person gets this rush of dopamine potentially and euphoria from knowing that they have access to the liquor now. Anything they drink at that will not produce that great an effect. All that will happen after they start drinking is it will, again, it's negative reinforcement. It will remove the negative experiences that they get from that. Again, we're talking about somebody who's developed a substantial problem over time, not somebody who's the first They've only just recently stopped drinking. Again, if you think about the executive functions again, you saw that chart that sort of listed it by uh, types of uh, functioning. But if you look on here, you can think about how executive function is directly connected to the decisions one makes when it comes to substances or, or process addictions, right? It, it impairs your ability to connect an action to a consequence. It impairs your ability to delay gratification. It impairs your ability to tolerate stress. The cells soothe yourself, talk yourself off the ledge, and make ra rational decisions. When somebody really gets into the throes of the cycle of addiction, what you'll find is that, that the more the disease progresses, the illness progresses, the faster they'll go through these three cycles, right? And the severity of the cycles will increase and the freak and how fast somebody goes from one stage to the other, right? You know, you have some people literally can start having withdrawals since four hours after the last drink, right? That shows, the, again, the progression of the illness. Um, and when they're in that craving stage with the prefrontal cortex and the cortex offline, and, you know, they get so preoccupied with the substance that it seems like the addiction seems to be the only answer, whatever again, they're addicted to. So if we switch gears for a second, I know I could have covered a lot of brain chemistry here, one of the things to keep in mind if you're not a neuroscientist or you're not you know, medical per se, 
it's less important you remember the different structures of the brain, but what is important is to understand that it's not just a matter of willpower. It's not just a matter of, you know, somebody making a conscious choice. You can see their ability to make good choices gets more and more impaired over time. And some people already have a predisposition to that because of exposure to child, adverse childhood experiences or trauma. What I like to do is shift gears now and talk about you know, uh, how this knowledge of the brain chemistry and what's going on in the brain of addiction has led to some good treatments that are available to assist people with certain types of addiction. Again, sometimes they refer to that as pharmacotherapy. That's where you're using psychiatric or medical medications to assist in the treatment recovery process. And there's really three categories of medications that are used to treat addiction and to reduce the risk. Um, one is called agonist meds, you know, and they call agonists because they 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 block, uh, they they bind to the receptor site, the same receptor sites that the drug of choice would, would attack, right? And because it uh, binds to that receptor site, it also stimulates it, right? So an agonist is something that stimulates the receptor site. So in a sense, it's producing the same kind of, you know, brain activity that taking, you know, an illegal substance would produce, like somebody who's buying heroin or fentanyl or, you know, taking non-prescribed uh, opioids, right? The difference is that when you're taking it as a prescribed medication, the methadone, it's control and it doesn't produce the euphoria. Um, it just simply blocks the withdrawal effects. It blocks the withdrawal effects so you don't get into that negative affect stage, right? And it also helps block the cravings of the urge because the brain's satiated in a sense. Some people sort of hear methadone, they don't really understand. They say, well, you're just giving the one drug for another, right? It is true that it's an opioid, right? But if it's taken as prescribed and, and properly dosed, again, it's not producing any euphoric effects. Um, it's simply blocking the withdrawal symptoms and the cravings. And it does that because it completely binds the receptor sites um, and, again, satiates that part of the brain. So, again, they call those agonist meds. Methadone is the, the, the most prominent of that. Um, there's things that are called partial agonist medications, too. And that's things like Suboxone and buprenorphine. Now, they have both agonist antagonist properties. It's sort of a combination, right? Remember, you said the agonist stimulates the uh, neuroreceptor sites, a, a, uh, an, an, I'm sorry, an antagonist stimulates it. Um, so what these medications do is they do block, they, they bind to the same receptor sites that somebody may take other substance, right? But the reason that these are, you know, very effective, the problem with something like methadone, right, is that, that somebody could take other opioids on top of it, right? And at that point, the benefits of methadone sort of go away, right? The methadone is supposed to you know, stop the craving and stop the withdrawal, right? But it doesn't stop the euphoric effects. So if somebody takes stuff on top of the methadone or takes more methadone than they're really supposed to, then at that point, it's acting like a, any other drug, any other opioid you might abuse. Partial agonist medications was sort of the second generation of came out years after methadone was available. And again, by combining both agonist and antagonist properties, what that actually means is that um, it blocks receptor sites. And if you take, if you try to take a certain amount beyond what you're supposed to, you don't get the euphoric effect. You don't really get any other effect from it. You know? And so then people are less apt to continue to abuse that because again, they're not really getting euphoric effects of it. They're simply eliminating the negative withdrawal effects and a negative affective state we talked about. Now, it's interesting. You see, like, you hear a lot, like, you know, like one of the, in a lot of prisons, uh, the number one substance being confiscated when they catch people smuggling drugs in prisons, a lot of times happens to be Suboxone. But people aren't smuggling into prison to get high. They're smuggling into prison to stop withdrawal and to stop getting really sick. Because right up until recent court action, a lot of prisons refuse to provide medications to people with addiction and just let them go cold turkey with no treatment whatsoever. And then the last is what they call antagonist meds, right? Now, these are not opioids, right? So things like Vivitrol, which is the injectable form, and naltrexone, uh, which is the same medication, but it's in oral format, called naltrexone. Um, those also bind to the opioid receptor sites, but 
but it doesn't activate them and it doesn't let them get activated. So if, if somebody tries to take any kind of uh, opioid substance after they have this in their body, then it gets going to immediately cause withdrawal symptoms. So, you know, and very uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. So it decreases the likelihood the person's going to want to, you know, to use because they're not going to get any benefit. They're just going to feel worse. Now, the Vivitrol is usually typically taken once a month. And that's one of the advantages to it in terms of compliance. Now, Trexone is typically taken once or twice a day. So, you know, the person, you know, and, and once somebody gets now Trexone in the system, typically it stays in their system for, for quite a while after. They also use this, uh, the, both of these meds are also used for alcohol. They have some real advantages to the same idea. It sort of it satiates the need for the alcohol by stopping withdrawal of the negative effect. There's also what they call aversive medications. People have heard of antabuse. Antabuse has a pretty long history. It actually goes back to the Korean War when they first started using it. Um, and they used to use it, you know, as a punishment almost. They used to, when they first started using it in the military, they would actually give people up to 2,000 milligrams a day. And there were actually some hospital-based programs, believe it or not, that would, you know, um, I guess the idea they were going to teach somebody a lesson was uh, when they would discharge the person after alcohol detox, they would give them this medication and they would have them drink in the hospital before they left so that they would get violently ill so that they'd know that you don't want to drink on this medication. But needless to say that that type of treatment doesn't work. What would end up happening was some people got, you know, violently ill and some even died at those higher doses uh, if they drank alcohol with it too. Plus a lot of people would say, well, geez, it's going to make me that sick. I'm not going to, just not going to take the medication. Okay? They don't use it that way anymore. Now it's really 500 milligrams a day is the most that they'll go up to. A lot of doctors start at 250 milligrams compared to 2000. If somebody takes this consistently, what it does is if, if uh, it creates a bunch of unpleasant physical symptoms if somebody drinks on it, right? And so that's why they call it an aversive. That it creates a negative thing. And for some people, it's, it's the substance that helps them to stay off it, right? Uh, especially the impulse drinker. Even if you stop taking it, um, it can stay in your system for up to two weeks afterwards, um, which would mean you'd still get those unpleasant side effects two weeks later. So the person that forgets for a couple of days and maybe gets the urge to drink uh, may not drink if they know that they're going to get sick. So for some people, it, it really works very well. You know, and in a little bit of time we've got left, I just want to talk a little bit about sort of what we know about stigma and discrimination because people have different attitudes and beliefs about uh, addiction and about whether it's, you know, free, free will and choice or, or whether it's, you know, a disease. A lot of people kind of scoff at the idea that addiction is a disease because they see it as a behavior. But let's look at any illness that we have, like, you know, like you know, somebody develops cancer and if they also smoke cigarettes, well, you know, there's obviously potentially a link between the behavior of smoking and the risk of developing cancer or someone, you know, that doesn't exercise and eats a lot of food, maybe at risk of heart disease, right? So if we're really honest, just about every kind of medical illness or, or just about every kind of chronic medical illness probably has a behavioral component that may contribute to or directly cause the medical problems, but we don't stigmatize it the same way that we historically have stigmatized addiction. When I talked a little while ago about a lot of prisons let people go cold turkey and not give them medical treatment, um, there was one study that showed that one in 20 people that were involved in the criminal justice system that were involved in criminal justice because of an arrest related to the use of opioids or the sale of opioids, only one in 20 actually got referred to specialized opioid treatment. The other 19 basically were referred to non-medication options or, uh, or, or given no options at all. The idea they should just stop it and quit, which is really one of the reasons so many people were becoming dependent and dying through overdoses because the criminal justice system does incorporate. There was a uh, group called Legal Action Center out of Washington, D.C., which is a kind of social justice advocacy law firm that specializes in mental health and addiction-related advocacy. And they started suing prison systems across the country very successfully, really making the case that, that it was blatant discrimination to refuse somebody medically valid treatment simply because of a belief system and not based on science. You know, so Massachusetts recently had to enter into a, a court decree 
as a result of these lawsuits and had to start offering methadone and other kinds of uh, treatment options for people that come into prison either already on those medications or potentially could benefit from them but haven't been on them before. If you think about it, we have this sort of class of treatment that sort of has been stigmatized. Right up until recently, uh, methadone centers across the country were, uh, it was really a criminal justice monitored department where you'd actually have Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is overseeing methadone clinics. You think about it, there's no other form of healthcare that has a criminal justice oversight regulation. Healthcare is usually overseen by the health department, right? Um, that wasn't the case until very recently in methadone clinics because of that built-in institutionalized discrimination. And, and also, you know, the, a lot of courts just would automatically refer it to things like non-drug treat, non-drug-free treatment options and, uh, and self-help. But the research very clearly shows that the gold standard treatment for opioid addiction is, in fact, med- medication-assisted treatment. So, you know, it just brings us towards the end. And, you know, I think that what, what I'm hoping to sort of impart from this presentation today is to sort of get you to think about what's your own belief system and attitude about addiction. Do you think it's a disease? Do you think it's, you know, just, you know, poor behavior? Do you think it's a morality issue? And, and to look at what's the science actually show, right? And, and, and to also be aware of all the different ways that they sort of institutionalize discrimination against people with uh, mental health and addiction types of illnesses. You can see it in the lack of parity in the insurance coverage, you know, in terms of, even though there's a federal law that says that, Insurance companies aren't supposed to have, you know, one set of standards for physical health conditions and a different one for mental health and substance use conditions. A lot of them still do, and a lot of states and insurance companies have to get sued before they'll actually offer equal coverage for both physical and mental health and addiction-related illnesses. If you think of like the addiction, so much news now about the opioid addiction, and important to think about how much of that was iatrogenically induced iatrogenic meaning physician induced, right? There was one study that showed that 80, more than 80% of people that started using heroin for the first time first became physically dependent on a legally prescribed opioid medication. You know, so, you know, and I'm sure you've been following the news that sometimes they referred to it as a prescription epidemic because there were so many people writing prescriptions for opioids in large quantities, larger than were needed and for longer than needed that sort of just produced another population of people addicted to opioids potentially. The other thing to think about is too, that that there's sort of been a bias. I think a lot of times in the general public that, you know, that if you're not going to AA, you're not really in recovery, for example, you know, the the idea that there's a correct path to recovery. But what research really shows is that, that recovery is an individualized process. And the right one is the one that works for somebody. For some people it's church. For some people it's getting a job and working a lot of hours and, some people, it's, um, you know, finding some hobby. For some people, it's going to AA. For some people, it's taking medications. For some people, it's a combination of all those things. Um, and so we really we have to get away from sort of where the courts are dictating what kind of treatment people ought to get or the medical providers are prescribing certain kinds of treatment as much as we ought to work with people to identify what's going to work for them. The last thing is you sort of, and then I'll turn over for any questions people might have in this sort of dialogue, but so just think about the concept of motivation, right? I think one of the things that we falsely have sort of said to people is that, you know, even like the language we use, that, well, he's not ready for treatment. He's not motivated yet. No, he has to get motivated, right? And I would say that that assumes that motivation is sort of this, like a light switch. You either have it or you don't, but, but that's not a correct way to think about it. Really, it's a fluid concept. I may have a little bit more motivation in the morning than I have in the afternoon, right? And I may be motivated to change things, but I may not be motivated to do it the way that you're telling me I should do it, right? Um, I would make the case that everybody's motivated. The question for us is to figure out what they're motivated by. You know, um, maybe that, you know, they're motivated to keep their job or to keep their relationship with the, you know, and, and some people used to say, well, that's not a good enough reason. If they don't want to quit just to quit, then it's not going to really work. It's not true. People will work towards change when they have enough subjective discomfort with the status quo. So when somebody's life gets to the point where they, some people call it hitting rock bottom, but it's that having a subjective discomfort that my current way of doing things isn't working with me. I want to try something else. 
right? So that's more to engage people fully. And also to think of, you know, that the process of recovery is not an event. It's not a light switch. It doesn't just happen. You know, like one day I'm using, the next day I just stop. You know, which means that relapse is a predictable part of the recovery process. And if you think of yourself, of any kind of change that you've made for yourself, of any kind of behavior, you know, changing your, your exercise pattern, changing your diet, changing any kind of lifestyle, most of us don't just do it right out of the gate. We have to stumble and fall and try it a bunch of different ways, and then maybe we eventually get a hang of it. And that's the same thing with, uh, I think, recovery from addiction. So I know we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. I just opened the, up to uh, you know, any questions or feedback here that people have. Or... Great. So um, I didn't see that we had many questions in the chat. I, I had a few questions myself as you were going through your slides. So I was interested by when you were talking about tolerance and you were talking about, you know, people who, you know, are kind of progressing their use in a substance, they adjust their kind of their either, um, you know, if they're getting, if they're, if they have tolerance to that substance, they can kind of adjust things if they're not getting their needs met with that substance. So either through like um, their frequency increases or the amount that they're using increases. Um, or their like ingestion method increases. Um, the other thing I was wondering is that if the substance that they're using changes, like if they're not receiving kind of the, the, the getting their needs met from that substance, would they try a different substance? That's a great question, Katie. Thank you. Uh, and, and some people do just that, right? Like maybe, maybe there's, there's no opioids available on the street. So, you know, and, and different people will try different things, right? Sometimes they try to find a substance just like it, and sometimes they'll take whatever's available. And again, it, unfortunately, um, for a lot of people, managing their, their, their addiction becomes sort of a full-time job, and, and they'll try different things. Sometimes they'll go on the internet and research things, or they'll talk to other people using. There's also this concept of what's called cross-tolerance or cross-addiction. You know, for example, uh, I'll give you an example of that, like, Alcohol is a sedative hypnotic, um, and so are benzodiazepines. So, you know, people could potentially, you know, go to their doctor and say, you know, I'm really nervous and anxious, and all of a sudden the doctor's prescribing Valium or Librium or Xanax. And, and in the, once the, that substance gets into the body, it acts the same way as alcohol, which is one of the reasons they use benzodiazepines in the alcohol withdrawal process, because it's, it's really in that same class of meds, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the implications of that is when you're talking to people that are for a treatment provider and, you know, somebody in recovery, then is to get them to understand that it's not going to really help their alcohol use if they, you know, instead increase their use of Xanax, right? It, right. They're really just substituting one substance for another. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting when you brought that up. I mean, the other thing I thought was interesting when you were talking about the person who has an, uh, you know, an alcohol problem and they were kind of like waiting to get out of work to go to the store to purchase alcohol and that was like kind of like their their high you know was purchasing the alcohol not even like being able to drink it per se but it was like being able to go to the store and purchase it and kind of having that like okay i have it now and i feel like a little bit better and that, that was really interesting too yeah that's really that i when I first learned that, I thought that was fascinating too. And if you think of it, that sort of helps to us to explain the concept of a process addiction, right? Because mm -hmm. when I first started learning about addictions myself as a treatment provider, we didn't really talk about process addiction. So everything that we learned about addiction is really about a substance, right? And we almost like didn't really address the other kinds of addiction. But and 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 and, and, and I sort of had a, until I understood what's going on in the brain myself because of, you know, the neurobiological research that's out there, um, I didn't fully understand, like, how somebody could be addicted to something that doesn't involve a substance. But they can because it's about the, what the brain is learning, right? And it's that yeah. negative and positive reinforcement in the brain. And so yeah. the brain is getting stimulated to respond a certain way. And at some, what, what some of the research that's coming out now is starting to talk about the idea that at some point when somebody's in the throes of the addiction cycle in a really progressed way, they, they really lose free will. The brain, it's mostly being driven by autonomic physiological responses and instinctual survival responses. And the person is no longer really a, a person that's actually making logical thinking choices at that point. 
Yeah. And like for that person, that purchase was like the reward, you know what I mean? And um, if I'm thinking about other kind of um, addictions, you know, like someone who's like a kleptomaniac, you know, someone who steals things, it's not about the item that they're stealing. It's like getting away with it. You know, it's the, it's the feeling that they get from knowing that they stole something. So, right. 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 So they, they get euphoria from it. Right. But at some point, they don't really get euphoria from it. What they get instead is they feel miserable. And, they, and you know, maybe the stress is getting to them. And the only thing that makes any sense at that point is I'm going to go out and steal something. And then I'll feel a little less miserable, right? Right. You know? And one thing I will say, I've been doing this work for, you know, 35 plus years. And I never met one person that ever started out with a goal of becoming physically or psychologically dependent. Nobody chooses this, right? So we have this idea that it's a choice. It's not. I don't know anybody consciously chooses to destroy their life. No. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it has to go with the kind of a illness model, you know, the, the medical scientific model of addiction, you know, where it's in. It's I loved an hearing what you talked. I loved hearing the trend that you're talking about, Lee, about um, that it's a process and that this is, you know, that allowing that everybody's recovery is different and it doesn't have to be just AA. I've been, you know, like you, I've been in the field a long time. Um, and I think we've actually crossed paths in, in the past. Um, yeah, I was Terry Tansky back then. Yeah. Um, nice to see you. And, you know, I, I, I love that it's come, that we've come to that point where we're able to talk about it as a process and that, recovery happens in many different ways and that each one is viable. And yeah, so I, I you know, I, I joined in the end and I'm so sorry I missed the beginning. I'm going to go back and listen to the recording, but I, that I was so happy to pop in at that place. That was, that was really good to hear. And I hope that that I'm hearing that more, even in anchor recovery, like people are talking about it in different ways. So I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that. I think that's really hopeful. Yeah, it comes out of the, the, the modern recovery movement, uh, Bill White's work, uh, Bill White yeah. and others, right? They found that there's one study that said that 75% of the people that are in long-term sustained recovery in this country did not do any of the traditional things. They didn't go to self-help. They didn't go to therapy. They didn't go into the hospital. They didn't go to detox. They did it their way, right? And and the, the, and and some the other new thinking too is the idea that you're in recovery when you say you're in recovery, right? Because <laughs> right, as opposed to somebody else defining for you, well, you're not really in recovery, right? You know, you know. So what's that mean? That may be you know, the, the person who's still smoking marijuana pretty regularly, but they stopped drinking. Well, I may not think it's great that they're still smoking marijuana, but they're on the process of, of healing because they, they had enough subjective discomfort with the alcohol, they decided to do something about that. And right now they're still believing that marijuana is doing something positive, so they're taking it. Um, one of the comments I saw uh, too is uh, about the, when you have access to some of the slides, and um, I don't know Rice's policy, but I can, I'm more than glad for the entire PowerPoint to be made available to anybody that wants it. That would be um, great. I'm actually thinking of someone I just spoke with whose son she's dealing. You know, he's he's come out that to her that he's got an addiction. So I would love to send her these, some of these slides to help support. That would be great. I, I use these same kind of slides, by the way, with my clients because it's a way to sort of, because clients come in believing a lot of awful things about themselves because of all the stigma out there. There's a lot of shame that goes with it, right? But when you can show people and help them to understand what's going on in their body and their brain and sort of normalize it, you know, then then it's a little less stigmatizing. And, and it, 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 you know, I find it very helpful when you can sort of approach it sort of a scientific way as opposed to, well, you should just stop because your life's a mess. Right, right. Uh, the other thing too, if you'll notice in the references that, that I, I try very hard, especially for the, the slides of the, I use public domain resources so that, you know, it can be freely shared and a great resource. If somebody wants to know, like delve into even greater is the U.S. The most recent U.S. Surgeon General report is where I took quite a few of the slides because that's a public domain document and they've got an entire, uh, chapter on in in that report on the neurobiology of addiction it's a really good sort of way to sort of give yourself a crash course on it or to share with somebody you know that may be interested in reading more detail about it great thank you so much do we have any other questions thank you lee well thank you for spending an evening i'm sure you got many other things to do on a 
uh, on a Monday night. And I thank everybody that joined us. And uh, I want to thank Rice Ass for giving me the opportunity to present. It's a great organization. I'm glad I could be part of your, your proud tradition. Thank you. I just have one last thing to say. So thank everybody for, uh, thank you for attending. Remember to complete the survey in order to get your certificate of completion, CEUs, and a chance to win a $100 gift card. The link is in the chat. We hope to see you back on November 9th for social media, everything you need to know. This uh, webinar will be in Spanish. Thanks so much, Lee. It was great seeing you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everybody. Nice to see you. Bye-bye. Thanks for your help, Katie. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this audio lecture and would like to hear more like it in the future, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. To find more information on RISAS, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and on our website, all down in the description below. And remember, please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you.